you have your Bibles, go ahead and open in them to Micah chapter 6. And, and as we walk through this sermon series, looking at this picture of justice, um, my approach to this one's a little bit different than it has been in years past because, and I shared last week, um, justice is the topic that uh, really has come to my inbox, my desk, you know, many lunches or coffees over the course of the last two years. Justice is really the, the crux of the questions that people have. Uh, whether it be around what's going on uh, racially in our nation around the area of justice or as it pertains to the pandemic, uh, right? So uh, what's just? Requiring vaccines, not. Requiring masks, not, right? And, and I guarantee you, you can draw a line and you will have more people than you can imagine on either side of that issue. Everybody seems to think most people think the way I do, and it's just not true. Uh, and so um, it's just been a fascinating conversation, and it's left me at a place where I go, okay, do I even understand what I mean when I start talking about justice? And so last week was a way to just broach the topic and, and get down to a foundational level where we say, okay, biblically, what are we talking about? And one, when we talk about justice, uh, we said it was a standard that's connected to this idea of righteousness. Uh, two, uh, you know, whether we believe it or not, we all hold to a form of justice, and our form of justice is what I would call derivative, meaning uh, it's derived from or comes from another source, right? So I think part of the reason uh, we're going to war with each other uh, so often in our country and in our churches is because I think, I think we're not paying attention to the fact that we're pulling some of our forms of justice from something other than the God of the universe. And, and I would just say as Christians, if we're if we're saying, I follow Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior, uh, then in a way, uh, we should be wrestling more with the form of justice that our Lord and Savior lays before us. I'm not saying at that point it just becomes easy. Oh, never mind. We'll follow what Jesus says, and then we'll all hug, and it'll all be great. Well, that's not true either. Just go back and look at church history, right? But I do think it's a place we've not wrestled well, at least culturally. And then third, as we talk about justice, you know, maybe not in the last 10 years as much as the previous 20 or 30 but the term social justice kind of became a dirty word in certain church circles. And the reason why is because it lent itself to leaving some of the key elements or what the Bible teaches. And so, But what I would argue is I don't think we need to separate the two terms because we said the standard to which God calls us to for justice is really his law. And you can summarize the law by really two commandments. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And that second part of God's moral law, uh, love your neighbor as yourself, means justice has to include social justice, right? How we engage as a society with one another, okay? So that's where we were last week. And, and I was tempted to go down the road where as people start asking me, okay, Anthony, what? tell me, is this right, right? Like, like should I be doing this form of justice? I know for many people there's an earnest question in there, but but for others, I've kind of caught a glimpse of, give me some ammunition so I can kind of blow away the other side who thinks their side is just. Just, just come on, give me a little bit more ammo damage, right? I'm going to go after them, right? And and, and so um, I was tempted to say, hey, let's let's you know put some things in place to say this is uh, healthy forms of justice and unhealthy forms of justice. I'm going to head in that direction next week uh, to an extent. Right, it won't be totally satisfactory. It's not going to answer every question we have, but but I felt like we needed one more week wrestling with the fact that God simply calls us to do justice. All right, so so that's where I'm going to land one more week, and and in part because sometimes, especially in Reformed churches, 
um, and, and even evangelical churches, uh, we can be known more from what we're against than what we're for, right? We can be known more for what we're against, right? Those people, that sort of ideology, rah, 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 right? That, that's kind of how we can be identified sometimes versus what we're for. You know, do people look at Christians and say they're, they're for the poor, right? They're for uh, this per- people group who, who need to be uh, walked alongside of or lifted up or loved, right? And so I want to just land one more week in, in looking at the fact that God calls us to justice. So this week will feel a little different. It's going to feel more like a Bible study. We're going to walk through Micah 6. Uh, and then uh, after we walk through the passage, I'm going to say, hey, this is at least biblically three ways that we see uh, God calling his people to do justice. And at the end, just a couple of brief observations culturally. So, so uh, maybe if you need a three-point outline, that's it. But it's not going to be in your bulletin. I'm sorry, three-point outline people. It's going to be a tough morning for you. But we're going to get there. Um, so I, I want to broach, uh, or I want to talk about this verse here, Micah 6, 8, right? So uh, as I started thinking about what were the verses that I heard a lot over the course of the last two years as it pertains to justice, and this was the one that I heard over and over again, Micah 6, 8, he has told you, O man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. Now I call this a coffee mug verse. Right? So there's some verses in the Christian faith that we just love to put on coffee mugs. We love to put on shirts. Now we love to put it on our Insta accounts, right? Uh, we love to kind of have a shiplap thing in our living room with some sort of cool, uh, you know, font that, you know, it has verses on it. I'm not saying those things are wrong. Like, I, I have coffee mugs with verses on it. I've had them and, and I like those shiplap things. They're cool. But sometimes I think when we lift a verse out of its context, we miss the power behind it and what's actually going on. Uh, you know, there's a song that was written, this is probably more in my college days, but, you know, it's in a major key, it's kind of happy, he has told you what is good and what the Lord, it's like, I'm smiling the whole time. Um, it's kind of like, as the deer pants for the water, so my soul longeth after thee, or longs after you. You ever heard that one? It's usually like on a mug with like a peaceful meadow and deer with grass hanging out, and it's just kind of like, what a happy verse. Stop and think about that verse. As a deer pants, have you ever seen a deer pant? No. Why? Because it's kind of rare, probably, and it's probably not that attractive. Think about it. It's more like a deer running through a forest trying to escape a wildfire and not having access to water and feeling like, if I don't get water soon, I'm going to die, right? You don't want that on your coffee mug, right? But that's what that verse is saying. So, so this is one, I'm not saying if we read it out of context, we're not going to get the gist of it. I, that's not true at all. I think, I think we, we do in a way, but, but I think if we pulled the camera back and studied it in its context, it gives us a little bit more understanding of what God is calling his people to. And so, um, if you have your Bibles, it'll be a whole lot easier for you this morning because, again, I'm just going to be more looking at my Bible. We're going to try to do some stuff up on the board, but it's just better for you to follow along there at your own chair if you're able to. But, but let me just start off by reading the first two verses. And I want you to think about as I read, what, what does it sound like the context is? Where, where is God and where are his people as we jump into it? So here's the first two verses. Ready? Micah writes this, hear what the Lord says. Arise, plead your case before the mountains and let the hills hear your voice. Hear you mountains, the indictment of the Lord. And you, enduring foundations of the earth, for the Lord has an indictment against his people, and he will contend with Israel. All right, let me pray for us, and then we'll keep moving here. Lord, I do pray that this morning uh, 
that you will use this brief amount of time that we have together looking at your word, that, that you would use it uh, not, not to help us weaponize whatever we can weaponize against someone who stands opposed to us with a different view, but, but Lord, whether, uh, rather to uh, soften our hearts and, and, Lord, draw our hearts to actually um, desire to and be able to act justly, to do justice, Lord, to love kindness or mercy, and Lord, to walk humbly before you. Lord, would you just help us this morning? Holy Spirit, would you help me? Uh, Would you superintend my words? And most importantly, would you change us at the hearing of your word today? We pray these things in your name. Amen. All right. So where are they? Where are they? Did you you pick up any language that might tell you kind of the the context of where they are in verses 1 and 2? And you guys, you could say it out loud. Court. I heard it. Court. They're in a courtroom, right? So God starts off and he's calling his people to the stand, Israel. And he says, arise and plead your case before the mountain and let the hills hear your voice. So the witnesses here is creation, all right? Those are the people who are paying attention to uh, what plea, essentially, God's people are entering. And I say plea because verse 2 is, God says twice, here mountains, you're, again, the witnesses the indictment of Yahweh, of the Lord. He says the Lord has an indictment against his people. So friends, God's people are going to court here in the Old Testament. Now here's what's going on in the book of Micah. This is a minor prophet. There's major and minor prophets in the Old Testament. Uh, The major prophets are books like Isaiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, Jeremiah, right? The major because they're longer. Uh, And then you have your minor prophets like Micah, it's all the little ones that come right after that uh, before it bumps up against the New Testament. And so here's really the two main things, especially for the prophets who are addressing God's people, that, that they're calling God's people back to over and over again. It's really two main things if you're reading through the prophets. One, it's the first part of God's law. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And, and they're calling them back to that because God's people for hundreds of years, over and over again, continue to neglect the one true God and run after every other false God in the neighborhood. Every single one of them. It would be like God coming to church today and saying before us, hey, return to God and, and quit going after and worshiping your gods of materialism or control or comfort or power or reputation. And so God's calling them to the stand for that. The second part of that is the second part of God's moral law. Where he's like, my people, you have not loved your neighbor as yourself. Time and time again in the prophets, you will see uh, how Israel has treated each other, right? This is, this is like, this would be considered in the New Testament within the church, right? Within the nation of Israel, they're oppressing each other. They're stealing each other's lands. They're robbing each other in the markets, overcharging right, for certain things. The elders themselves are saying, yeah, just go, just go run after whatever you want and taking advantage of the sheep, if you will. And some of the charges against God's people is they're immigrants who come into their midst and God's people are treating them like trash. And it's because of those two things that we're getting ready to start the book of Daniel here in a couple of weeks. Uh, the book of Daniel is God's people in, in captivity. God literally goes in as, as, as punishment for ignoring his law for hundreds of years, even though he gives them chance after chance after chance, he rips them out of their promised land. And he puts them back into slavery because that's what they wanted. And so that's the context 
of Micah. And that's why he starts talking about justice. He's putting them up on the stand in part. And I think this is talking about the second part in the neighbor love aspect. He's saying, man, y'all, y'all are just oppressing each other to oblivion. And I'm not going to let you get away with it anymore. And so it's kind of terrifying, right? Right? I mean, do you imagine God calling you to the witness or to the stand and giving you an indictment? All right, so let's keep going. Verse 3. Oh, my people, what have I done to you? How have I wearied you? Answer me. So, so you know, when we sin, when we rebel against God, I, I think this verse actually gives us a little bit of insight uh, as to the nature of our hearts. Right? When we come up against God from his law, from God's word, convicting us, telling us that, hey, you're, you're out of alignment with what I've called you to, right, as your God. You know, what's our temptation sometimes? I think, at least for me, maybe not for you, but, but I tend to turn around and kind of wag my finger back at God. Well, I'm doing this because you didn't do this, right? I mean, it's a lie as old as the garden. That's what the serpent slithered up to Eve and said. He had us question God's character and say, does he really love you? He told you not to eat that fruit. That's probably because he's this power-hungry megalomaniac, right? He just doesn't want you to see the full version of what you could be, your best self now, right? That's our hearts. We'd love to say, you did this to me. You've wearied me, God. So God says, tell me how. Now, I think there's a tenderness to God here that we can't miss. Those first few words, oh, my people. You know, every commentator you will read says that that is the, the heart of the Father. He's still entreating them. He's going to them and saying, my people, oh, my people. Right? I read this through the lens of God's ticked off and he's just you know, throwing stuff and whatnot, but, but I actually don't think even as he calls them to the witness stand that, that that's necessarily what's happening. Let's keep moving. Where does God go next? This is fascinating. Verses 4 and 5, he says, For I brought you up out of the land of Egypt and redeemed you from the house of slavery. And I sent before you Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. O oh, my people, remember what Balak, king of Moab, devised and what Balaam, the son of Beor, answered him. And what happened from Shittim to Gilgal, that you may know the righteous acts of the Lord. All right. So, so really what he does is he turns a corner and he, and he points out... Um, these three realities from their history. First, he takes them back to Egypt, right? They're in the land of slavery. They are, they are oppressed. And God is saying, I'm, I'm going to free you from that. And, and by the way, this is how the Ten Commandments starts off too. You know the moral law, right? Where God starts giving commands, thou shalt, thou shalt not. It doesn't start with a thou shalt. It actually starts with a relationship. It says, I am the Lord your God who uh, brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. Therefore, thou shalt have no other God before me. It begins with God saying, I saved you so that you can be in a relationship with me. Therefore, this is how you live this out. And so he's taking them back to the point of his deliverance from Egypt. He's pointing out his justice. He's saying, hey, remember the Egyptians that enslaved you? Remember what I did to them in the Red Sea? Don't forget that. That was my justice. He reminds them, secondly, of Balak and Balaam. And and long story short, that's from Numbers 22 to 24, where there are people who wanted to curse Israel and God's people, and and God orchestrated things in the opposite direction to convince his people, my desire is to bless you, to show you my mercy, to show you my kindness. 
And then this last one, uh, from Shittim to Gilgal. Now that, that's a sermon in and of itself. If you go back to Numbers, uh, 25 to Joshua chapter 5 and, and realize everything that he's talking about there. But, but in short, uh, in, in Shittim, the covenant was broken. God's people rebelled against him once again in the wilderness right before they were getting ready to possess this promised land that he's graciously promised them that they didn't deserve. And, and once again, they, they grumble, they complain, they, they wave their fist at God, they disobey him. Friends, God had every right, right to wipe them out at that moment. He is the just God. He could have punished them. He said, never mind, the land's not yours. But do you know what Joshua 5 takes us to? It's God parting the Jordan, right? Parting of water again, leading them across into the promised land that they didn't deserve. You know what he does? He has a vow renewal ceremony on the other side in Joshua chapter 5 in Gilgal. He said, hey, I'm going to be gracious and I'm going to be merciful and I'm going to remind you of what I've done and, and that you're my people and I'm your God. So as we go into this gift of land that I'm giving to you, follow me faithfully. That's mercy. Friends, do you realize every single one of us has spiritual amnesia? We have spiritual amnesia. We forget within 30 seconds the good things that God has done for us. How He has actually demonstrated justice in our lives. How He has shown us His mercy and His kindness time and time again. You know, it was funny, the other night we were sitting around the dinner table and we were talking about um, our stories of faith, how we uh, came to know Jesus as our Lord and our Savior. And, and it was interesting what happens. I'm not a crier. I know some of you all wish I would cry a lot more. I'm just sorry. I can't muster that in myself. You can pray for that if that's a thing you should pray for. Uh, but, but I'm not a crier. But on this night, I sat down and I just recounted how, you know, for um, the last two years up to this point, I was actually on a crusade to talk people out of the Christian faith. I was sitting on bar stools and I was telling people why they should not believe in Jesus. Part of it was because I was mad at him. I was mad at him because of some of the stuff and how it went down in my life. But then I started recounting how uh, on the beaches of Panama City Beach, Florida, uh, that the Lord graciously took my legs out from underneath me. Just exploded on the scene where I was able to see his beauty for the first time. It's like scales just fell off my eyes, and I just went walking down the beach, and I was just sobbing. And as I was telling that story again, I just started crying at the dinner table. That usually freaks my family out. They're like, Daddy, don't cry. Like, this is, this is kind of terrifying. What's getting ready to happen? But, but, but it was just this, I stopped, and I'm like, how many years has it been since, since I've sat in my own story and been moved by how gracious God was to chase me down when I was running from him and I was convincing others to run with me? So friends, we have spiritual amnesia, and, and I think that's part of what's happening here. He's calling them the justice, but he's doing it after he reminds them of his mercy and kindness and justice that he's shown them. Here's the second thing that I, I would just say is, you know, this gives us a picture of, you know, we all have our own agendas when we come to God. Don't you have a wonderful plan for God for your life? Right? Here's how it should happen. Here's how my life should look. Here's how this relationship should go. Here's how this business should, should head. This is what retirement should look like. We have those, right? And sometimes God's agenda lines up with ours, but you know what? God always has his own agenda as well. And it's perfect, and it might not line up with ours. And I think in part, Israel's wrestling with that. And I think God is saying here and reminding him of these three areas is, I've had an agenda, it's not always matched yours, but I am still just and good. All right, 
Let's keep going. How, how do they respond, right? Have you ever had the God moment where maybe you feel convicted about something or, or you're seeing kind of the bigness of God or you're seeing the kindness of God and, and you're feeling um, kind of dirty or shameful or, or guilt-ridden? What, what's our instinct? What's our instinct? Let's, let's see if that instinct matches Israel's instinct here. Six and seven. God's people respond to this with, What shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before Him with burnt offerings and a calf a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with a thousand rams, with tens of thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body, for the sin of my soul? Friends, in a way, I think God is calling His people here to rest in His previous work in their lives. His making them just, His uh, bringing them out and releasing them from slavery. But do you know what the pull of their heart is? And this is certainly the pull of my heart. Okay, I see my flaws. How do I work myself back to good standing with you? Right? How do I get back there? Did you see the progression? Do I bring a calf? How about 10,000? I got 10,000 back here. I'm going to give you 10,000. That'll do it. And then they said, how about I just give you my kid? How about I sacrifice my, my firstborn, Right? If you go back and look at the law, by the way, they're already breaking God's law <laughs> because God's law says, hey, don't sacrifice your children to God. Right? This was a practice of the world around them. Right? I mean, the gods around them, around Canaan and whatnot, they, sat, they, they had their people sacrifice their children to these gods all the time. And so it's funny, even in, even in God's people acting religious, they're breaking God's law. It's fascinating. It's horrifying. Right? And what's God's response? So you come back and you say, you idiots, what are you, come on. Is that his response? Y'all didn't read that, did you? No. Here's what he says. He has told you, oh man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God? And he, he, he tells them, can y'all get away from the religious stuff for a second? You know, Jesus uses a similar technique confronting other religious folks in the book of Matthew, verse 20, or chapter 23. He's talking to the scribes and the Pharisees, and, and they're like, okay, we're, we're going to overdo our sacrifices so we can be in a good standing before God. Here, here's what he says. Woe to you. That's not good. When somebody says woe to you, it's not a good thing. Scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin, but have neglected the weightier matters of the law. He's saying, y'all go out to your garden, you're clipping stuff, and you're, and, you're, and you're sacrificing things. I've never asked you to sacrifice just to earn good standing. He said, but in doing it, you've actually ignored the things that I've actually called you to pay attention to. And he goes on and he says, justice and mercy. Mercy is another term for kindness in the verse we're talking about. And faithfulness, that's what it looks like to walk humbly before our God. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. So here's essentially what's going on here. It's the indicative imperative. You've heard me say this before. Uh, the indicative comes before the imperative, and the order is not reversible. So uh, in the Christian faith, what he's basically saying is, what is true of us always comes before what to do, and we can't goof that order up. Our tendency is to say, what I do equals what is true of me before God. And the gospel of Jesus Christ is saying, no, no, you are getting that all wrong. Jesus died for you when you were a sinner. You were dead. You couldn't even call on him. You weren't even looking for him. He put on skin and died so that you can have a relationship with him. What you do has no bearing on that. However, the other side of that is sometimes we ignore the imperative. That 
God actually does call us to to work out our salvation. And part of that, what he's saying here, is doing justice. And I will say this, unless that indicative, unless we get that right, what Christ has done for us, how he endured injustice so that we could have his righteousness, unless we understand that, we're going to be doing justice to prop ourselves up for the rest of our lives. We will. We will be doing justice, but it won't be to love that person. It'll be to love me, to make myself feel better. So let me just encourage you to get that order right. And you know, if you're feeling like, oh yeah, I've really blown it. Here, here's a picture of justice from 1 John 1, 9 that should encourage us. If we confess our sins, Jesus is faithful and just. How about that? Same language. To forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. To free us from kind of the neuroses of being on the gerbil wheel of, of doing justice to earn our standings before him. I would say this, that gospel maturity, and Tim Keller says this in his book, Generous Justice, uh, is a sign, or, or a sign of gospel maturity is when we begin to meet others' needs in the same way we would meet our own. Because we've looked at Jesus ignoring his own needs and, and coming flesh and dying for us. And as we see that, it frees us up to be able to do that for other people. No strings attached. Let me give you, so, so here's the bottom line that, that, I think, um, that I think God's telling his people here, at least as it pertains to justice. Just do it. Rest in who I am. Let's not overthink this thing. And let's just go and do it. All right. So as we talk about doing justice, then let me just give you three levels of, of how God and his word, we see him calling us to do justice. Uh, again, I'm borrowing these three categories from Tim Keller in his book, Generous Justice. If you want a good resource as to how grace transforms our heart to act justly, uh, that is a fantastic and approachable book. So let me just commend that to you. But here's the three categories he gives. One is relief. One form of doing justice that we see in the Bible is relief. Relief is direct aid to meet an immediate physical, material, or economic needs. This is the Good Samaritan, right? Luke chapter 10. Luke chapter 10, there's somebody wounded on the side of the road. A couple folks walk by him who should have stopped. The Samaritan stops and bandages his wounds, food and drink, gives them lodging, right? That is a picture of release, and that's a relief, and that's a form of justice we see in Scripture. This is uh, what's happening right now as we engage with this couple from Afghanistan. We're bringing relief and helping them find housing and jobs and food and food and clothing. This is what happened with the tornado when we grabbed our chainsaws and, and started cutting down branches and opened our school or opened our church for the school to come in and have school that week. That's, that's a picture of relief. But here's another one. It's development. This is when we give an individual, a family, or an entire community what they need to move beyond dependency on relief into a condition of economic self-sufficiency. Here's a picture of it from Scripture. You're like, Anthony, is that in the Bible somewhere? Here's a fascinating picture from Deuteronomy. Old Testament law. This is when uh, a person set their bond servant free. And here's how God calls them to uh, engage with that. He says, when you let him go free from you, you shall not let him go empty-handed. You shall furnish him liberally out of your flock. Give him sheep, right? Income, food, clothing. Out of your threshing floor, right? That's grain for food. And out of your wine press, give him wine. As the Lord your God has blessed you, you shall give to him. You shall remember, here it is again, that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God redeemed you. Therefore, I command you this today. That's a picture of development. There's a brother in here. I'm not going to embarrass him. 
Uh, actually, yeah, anyway, I don't know if he's in here or not, but I'm still not going to embarrass him because he might hear this. But, but there's a man in this church who has come alongside of people who were kind of living in relief for a very long time, and, and, and he has multiple times now come alongside and said, hey, let me teach you job skills. Hey, let me teach you how to do an interview. Hey, give me your resume. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to work on this for you so, so we can help uh, get you a job so you're not constantly living in this relief category but, but moving you into this developmental category. Now, admittedly, this is far more time-consuming and complex and expensive, but this is a form of justice that I believe God calls his people to. Here's the third one, and it's social reform. It's social reform. What social reform means is it's instituting a new social arrangement that stops the flow of victims because of a change in social conditions. Let me read it again. Instituting a new social arrangement that stops the flow of victims because of a change in social conditions. All right? And so here's an example of this from Scripture. This is a follower of Yahweh, a follower of God, to a non-believing king in a non-believing country in Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon. He says to him, he says, Therefore, O king, let my counsel be acceptable to you. Break off your sins by practicing righteousness and your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed, that there may be perhaps a lengthening of your prosperity. So he's saying, Nebuchadnezzar, you're a tyrant. <laughs> he's like, if you begin to show mercy, you should begin to show mercy to the oppressed. And, and he's saying there's societal good that will actually come from that. You know, there's a picture of that happening actually in the church, right, where there needed to be some form of social reform at the beginning of the church, really, in Acts chapter 6. You had the kind of the, 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 those who are in power in a way, the, the Hebrew Christians, right? So think the apostles, uh, the disciples at the time. Uh, they, there was a, an arrangement where there was a fight between the, the Hebrew Christians and the Hellenistic Christians because uh, the Hebrew Christians were uh, taking care of their widows, but they were ignoring the Hellenistic or the Greek-speaking widows. And the Hellenists were like, this isn't okay, and so Acts chapter 6 is actually the first, they call it a, a, the proto-diaconate. It's the first form of a diaconate. But they basically said, okay, choose seven people who are going to help fix this problem, who we empower to fix this problem. What's fascinating is another sermon for another day, but do you know who, were cho- who was chosen? Seven Hellenists. The power culture yielded power and said, hey, uh, you probably best know how to take care of this, so you take care of our widows and yours. And hey, political people, just stop it right now. Whatever you're thinking I'm saying about politics, I'm not saying it, okay? I, I just know, I know us. I know us. I see it. I'm not getting political. I'm just reading my Bible. No social programs are going to come out of this one. But that's a picture of social reform in Scripture. Sorry, that was a little, whew, I got a little heated there for a second. That... That stop felt a little more authoritative than it should have. I apologize for that. But anyway, we can talk afterwards. All right. So, so let me just give you a couple more observations. In our day and age, I think there's a danger that our culture is moving us towards a place of disembodied justice. A place of disembodied justice. Most of the justice that we see as we read our Bibles, it's embodied justice. I think part of it is Jesus Christ himself. I think as Christians, we should focus more on Christmas time justice. You know what I mean by that? You know, what happens at Christmas? Jesus became flesh and dwelt among us. He put himself in our position. He empathized with us. He, he felt into 
our current condition, by putting on skin and coming to be with us. We live in a time where society is telling us, hey, the way we do justice is is disembodied. We yell into the hole of social media. We yell into the hole of the news. You know what it's doing? It's making us angrier. Now, I'm not saying, don't hear what I'm not saying. There's my bumper sticker. I'm not saying we shouldn't work towards social reform. But if you look at the most effective social reformers, it almost feels like they started back at the place of relief where they embodied justice, where they went, you know, we can yell on social media all day long, but we're ignoring our neighbor across the street who's out of a job, who's grieving, whose child has all sorts of needs, and that couple hasn't gotten away on a date for 12 years. There's refugees all around us. If we could just go lean into that world of relief with another human being instead of a computer screen, I think it would impact us more greatly. That's not an imperative, that's not a command, but, but I just see it. I see it in my own life. I get further and further away from justice when all I do is talk about it instead of engaging with it physically, viscerally, with another human being. Here's the second thing to, to make us aware of. Pay attention to when our sense of justice becomes injustice. And, and here's what I mean by that. There was a story, so I was with 30 other, almost 30 other pastors this week, and it was kind of like, like after the war, you just sit around and tell war stories. It was kind of, it was a great week. I felt very normal. Uh, and, and we just sat around and we just told stories of what was happening. And, and there was one guy who was like, I met with a, an elder just this last week who was, who was just pounding on how this form of justice is terrible. It's the worst thing in the world. And, and he's like, and what was crazy is we started talking about it. And then within about 10 minutes, his elder, it's his elder, is standing over him screaming and saying, you need to grow a a spine. He didn't say spine. He said something far more offensive. And then he just shoved the table and he walked away. Now, he might have come to the table with a good sense of justice where he does want to love other people well. But at some point in that moment, justice didn't become about loving neighbor the camera turned back on himself. You know, when we just start getting angry and yelling at other people, our mental model has changed. It's gone from the other person to my control, to my reputation. You're not doing what I want you to do, and so I'm going to attack you and shut you down. And friends, that's a form of injustice. That's injustice. And so just be mindful of where we're doing that in our minds and in our hearts. But I think at the end of the day, as we look at the Gospels, we look at what God calls us to in His Word, He's saying, look at the indicative. Look at what is true of you. Look at what I've done for you. And then that frees us up towards the imperative to go and do justice, to love our neighbor as we would want to be loved ourselves. Let me close this in prayer. Lord, even in my strong statement, I, I feel in my heart the, the temptation to, to, in that moment, defend myself. <laughs> Forgive me. Even in preaching on justice, I can create a moment of injustice. And God, I know that every single one of us can, can land in that same place. Lord, if we're not having strong emotions about seeing suffering or suffering ourselves, and we're not being human, we're not... Um, paying attention to our own hearts. But, but Lord, I think what it also proves is that we are in desperate and dire need of your grace and your mercy. 
And so, Lord, as we see Your grace and mercy more clearly, would You make us more just? And Lord, would You work out of us our desire to fulfill that lie that we have to prove ourselves by being more just? But that, Lord, You've done all the proving on our behalf, and that frees us to love other people regardless of what impact that has on our own lives. And so, Jesus, thank You for Your Word. Thank You for this time. And I pray that that as we sit in the beauty of your gospel, that you would make us a, a, per, a people, a church, and individuals who act justly. Lord, that we show kindness and we walk humbly before you. We pray these things in your name. Amen.